Well, good morning. Again, glad you're here, and I'm not sure how you come into this place this morning, uh, but I'm glad that you're with us, and I hope you feel welcome, uh, and I hope uh, you keep coming back to be with us uh, on Sundays. Uh, I'm going to read uh, from 2 Samuel chapter 11 and chapter 12. I'm going to ask you, as is our custom here, to stand, if able, for the reading of God's Word as we continue in our study in the life of David in First and Second Samuel, this is God's Word. I'm reading from portions of chapter 11 and then verses 1 to 7 of chapter 12. It's in your bulletin and on the screen as well. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him in all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing and the woman was very beautiful and David sent inquired about the woman and one said is this not Bathsheba the daughter of Eliam the wife of Uriah the Hittite so David sent messengers and took her and she came to him and he lay with her now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness then she returned to her house and the woman conceived and she sent and told David I am pregnant verse 14 in the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter, he wrote, Set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him, that he may be struck down and die. And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there was valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab, and some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. Chapter 12. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. He used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guests who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. And then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Nathan said to David, You are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. Isaiah 40 tells us the grass withers and the flowers fade, but God's word endures forever. Now let me pray for us. God, I ask that you would come and speak, speak to us, Lord. By your spirit and to our spirit, may we be changed. May you open the eyes of our hearts. May you convict us. Convict us not so that we just wallow, but convict us and then turn our eyes upon Jesus to look full into his wonderful face and to the grace that is offered freely yet again to us this morning. Change us, we pray. Be with me, the one who preaches, that I may get out of the way so that Christ and Christ alone is exalted. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. You have a seat. Well, we've been in the life of David, First and Second Samuel, for a number of months, and this morning we come to what Walter Brueggemann calls the pivotal turning point of the entire David narrative. Here we have King David, the man who once was a shepherd boy tending the sheep 
is now a mature man, established as the king over all of Israel. He is the man whom Scripture says is a man after God's own heart. He is the writer of most of the Psalms, these poetic, heartfelt prayers to God. They were the prayer book, the Psalms, the prayer book for the Israelites. He's the author. And in this story, we see David shift from a man trusting in his God, a man leading his country in triumph, to now a man controlled by his passions, indulging in sin. Brueggemann says that this story is the intrusion of sin that cuts so sharply that it rivals in power the original act of Adam and Eve. The story of David that we're looking at this morning is a story of grave sin. And sin really is the answer to what is wrong, uh, much of what is wrong in our world. Yet it is something that we don't like to address address, especially in many educated settings. And we live in an educated city and region of our country. In classrooms, we don't hear, you've not heard that the reasons for the problems in our world might be sin. In learning about psychology, we don't hear lectures given that what leads to the problems with ourself is the problem of sin. We don't hear people say that the answer to some of life's most difficult questions of why is sin. So we're going to talk about sin this morning. And, and let me just answer very quickly, what is sin? Maybe you're, you're wondering that. And I, I really like the Westminster Catechism's answer. This is what sin is defined there. It says, sin is any want of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. Sin is desire or and action against God. Sin is wanting or desiring something more than God, more than His good commands, or sin is actually going against God, acting against God and His good commands to us. Sin is a heart problem. It's a want, a longing, a desire problem that can also lead to a head and hands and feet problem, the way we think and the way we act. Sin, some might say, and you may be here this morning saying, that's kind of, that's old-fashioned, unintelligent. Surely there's more to the answer of why than just sin. And sure, there's a lot that we could talk about, but I don't think there's anything more important for us to understand than this problem of sin. And, I, and this morning, this passage confronts us with the nature of sin. The nature. David, this man trusting and resting in his God, now becomes a man who is an adulterer, a murderer, and a liar. David, who writes Psalm 23, verse 4, Who may ascend the hill of the Lord? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. Now is a man far from clean and and pure in his heart. He is wicked and deceitful. Let me ask you a question. Do you think you are capable of doing what David did? Do you think you're capable? Do you think you are better than some people? And it's quite terrifying and humbling for me to think about pastors in particular who I've admired who have engaged in deep sin, hiding it from others for long periods of time. Pastors. And in terror and humility, I don't judge, I quake. Because I know that sin lurks within my own heart. 
And I know, no matter how you come into this place this morning, that sin lurks in each and every one of your hearts. The story of David shows us that. That the seeds of sin lie in the most dedicated of human hearts. Including yours, including mine. Maybe you're here for the first time or you've just come a few times to Christ Central and you're like, man, why does this talk about sin? Why are we talking about what's wrong? Why are we focusing on the bad? Let's talk about good. Well, let me tell you the paradox of Christianity and the paradox of the gospel of Christianity. Seeing sin leads to seeing our Savior. Understanding our sin leads to us understanding the love of God. Seeing our brokenness leads to being filled with joy that comes in the salvation that God offers to us. We don't talk about sin. We don't confess sin so that we can wallow in sin. That would be self-pity. We talk about sin. We seek to understand sin. We confess it so that we can turn to a God who offers grace and forgiveness. And if we short-circuit our understanding of sin, then we short-circuit our understanding of the steadfast love of God that abounds to us. It's the beauty of the story of David is that it reveals a dedicated man who can be led into grave sin, but there's still a God that loves and pursues the sinner. The gospel is not just a story only about our sin. It's ultimately about a God who loves us in the midst of our sin and what our God does despite our sin. But we have to understand sin. So I want to look at two things in regards to the nature of sin from 2 Samuel 11 and chapter 12. We're going to look at sin's posture and sin's verdict. Sin's posture and sin's verdict. Let's look at sin's posture. And we can see at least two things that are true of the posture of David in his sin. The first is the posture of passivity. Look at verse 1. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all of Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. It's springtime. Time when rain stops and it makes military action feasible. It's the time when accent, uh, kings go out to battle. Right? It's wartime with the Ammonites. But David is not at war. 1 Samuel 8 tells us that kings were the ones who would lead their country into battle. But David has ceased to be that king. He's now relying on others to do his work, and he has stayed back in Jerusalem. The Hebrew for remain here can be translated sit. Sit. And that is the picture we see in verse 2. David arose from the couch. David was sitting on the couch. David the king, not engaged in war, was not in action, instead remained and sat on his couch and initiated other action, sinful action. John Owen, great theologian from the 17th century, said, kill sin or it will kill you. Kill sin or it will kill you. Owen is saying, be active against sin or sin will be active against you. And that's what we see to be true with King David. David is disengaged from his calling. He's disengaged from his duty to advance the kingdom of God. And in his passivity, sin begins to have his way in David's heart. Think about your own life. When does sin come creeping in? When 
your mind or my mind begins to be set on things not of God, but on the things of this world. When your shift of a worldview that maybe was dominated by God, all of a sudden is a worldview dominated with yourself. Sin comes creeping in when we sit on the couch. Instead of engaging in God's war, our mind actively engaged in thinking about His kingdom, it shifts to being engaged and thoughtful about our own lives and our own kingdom. Look at 1 Peter. Let me read 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13. It says, Therefore, prepare your minds for action. And being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at revelation of Jesus Christ. I'm going to come back to the end of that verse here in a minute, but look at the first part. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. When we have our thoughts set on this world, our success, our pleasure, our comfort, our ease, our happiness, that's when we become passive participants in the kingdom of God. That's when we become people who are sitting on the couch. That does not mean that you can never sit on your physical, actual couch and watch a movie or take a nap like I fell asleep yesterday watching the tournament. I'm not telling you go be a busybody. In fact, if you've been coming at all in this Life of David sermon series, I've told you that sometimes the most gospel thing you can do is stop and rest. I'm not saying you know, that you can't rest. I, I'm, I'm saying we need to rest well. We need to rest the way God tells us to rest. I love this quote by Victor Hugo. He says, one is not idle because one is absorbed. There is both visible and invisible labor. To contemplate is to toil. To think is to do. The crossed arms work. The clasped hands act. The eyes upturned to heaven are an act of creation. What Hugo is saying is there is a difference between active rest and a passivity that leads to sin. A mind prepared for action is one that is prayerfully seeing all of life through the lens of God and His salvation. That God created and all is very good, yet it's broken because Adam and Eve sinned and, and went against God. Broken in every respect, but God sent His only Son, Jesus, to redeem all that is broken. And one day, someday, we'll restore it all the way it was intended to be. A mind that is engaged, that is active, is prayer-filled. We live and walk and talk, engaging in all of life's activities with an eye turned towards heaven. Seeking to understand how all of life is about God and His kingdom. And when we turn our eyes toward ourself and our minds become disengaged with God's work and God's kingdom, sin comes creeping in as we sit on the couch. Comes creeping in in our passivity. Second thing about sin's posture since posture is one of power, not just passivity. Look at verse 2. David arose from the couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house, and he looked down and saw a woman bathing. Don't miss here what the, the writer is doing. In this narration, he's depicting King David in a position of power in his house looking down on this woman Bathsheba. Eleven times in this chapter, chapter 11, the word send is used. 
It frames the beginning and the end of the chapter. David sends Joab. David sent and inquired about Bathsheba. David sent messengers. David sent word to Joab. David sends Uriah into the front line of battle. David has moved from a compassionate king toward others to I am above you, I give orders, and I exercise my power kind of a king. He's moved from being consumed for God's kingdom to consumed for his own kingdom. Sin comes creeping into our hearts and our lives when we operate from a position of power or control where we think we're the most important. Sin happens when we hear God's rules and God's commands and we prefer our rules and our way of living. Every time we choose to disobey God, we think our way is better. We're living from a posture of control and of power, and sin comes creeping in. This is sin's posture, passivity and power. Look at verse 3 to 5. David then inquires about Bathsheba. (laughs) I mean, he's a dead man already. And with great swiftness in verse 4, he sent, took, she came to him, and he lay with her. David acts with incredible quickness in his sin. There's no conversation recorded between him and Bathsheba. This isn't love. This isn't romance. This is pure, sinful lust. It's been at work in David's heart already. David has moved in two chapters. You'll see Timothy's going to preach next week on, on 2 Samuel 9. Two chapters. He moves from extending loving kindness to Mephibosheth, the grandson of Saul, to now acting swiftly in his lust. And Bathsheba only has three words in this whole story. I'm pregnant. I am pregnant. Listen, there are consequences to our sin. There are consequences to each and every one of our sins. Well, David then sends for Uriah, the husband of Bathsheba, and David tells Uriah, catch this, Go wash your feet, Uriah. In other words, what he's telling Uriah to do is go home. Go home, Uriah, and be with your wife. Go be with your wife. Go know your wife. Go have sex with your wife. David is conspiring to put responsibility for the pregnancy onto Uriah. But Uriah won't go because Uriah is a faithful soldier of Israel. Israel. So he sleeps at at the king's door. David then tries to get Uriah drunk at a feast. But Uriah still won't go home and have sex with his wife. So David gets even more creative. He decides to send a letter to Joab, the military commander. And in that letter, it's telling Joab to put Uriah in the front line of battle so that Uriah would be killed. And of all people to carry the letter to Joab, it's Uriah. Uriah carries his own death warrant to Joab. David is acting in cold blood to cover up his sin so that he can sin again. We too, people of God, brothers and sisters, will go to great lengths to cover up our sin. We will go to great lengths to to not be found out in our sin, to hide And we can get very creative. I think sometimes our most creative selves come out when we seek to to deceive others and even deceive ourselves. 
Let me just interject here. If you've been hiding and you've been deceiving in your sin for some time, I want to say that today is a great first day to start being honest. There's no day like today to be honest before God and even share it with one or two others that you really, really trust. You don't have to hide. But Uriah, in David's deceit, is killed in battle. And this man, after God's own heart, puts Uriah in the grave. I guarantee you, David didn't feel like a sinner when he sent for Bathsheba. He felt like a lover. And David didn't feel like a sinner when he sent for Uriah. He felt like a king. Sin often feels good for a moment. Along the way of being passive and operating from a position of power, David withdraws from a God-dominated life, a mind actively set on the kingdom of God to an obsession with himself. And he commits murder and adultery and he lies. The king, after God's own heart, breaks many of the Ten Commandments. Right, Just the Ten Commandments. He breaks many of those. And I don't know about you, But I'm so glad that our God puts stories like this in the Bible. I'm so grateful that the Bible is chock full of stories of bad guys and bad girls that God uses for his kingdom. That God works in and through people who don't deserve it. That's great news to me and to you this morning. That's sin's posture. Let's look secondly at sin's verdict. In chapter 12, verses 1 to 7. See, the real surprise in this story is not what David did. You know, chapter 11 would seem pretty bleak if we just stopped there, which is why I continued into chapter 12. Chapter 11 ends with, but the thing David had done displeased the Lord. And then chapter 12 begins with, the Lord sent Nathan. The Lord sent Nathan. Instead of condemning David, the Lord sent Nathan. Catch that word? God is reestablishing who really is in control. God is reestablishing who really has the power. He sends Nathan to David. God's not going to allow David to rest in his sin, but God pursues David in his sin. It's amazing that God doesn't give up on David, and he doesn't give up on you, and he doesn't give up on me. He pursues us. He comes after us. God sends Nathan, and Nathan tells a parable to David. There's a rich man and a poor man. poor man had one little lamb, and the rich man had many. But a traveler comes, and the rich man kills the poor man's lamb to feed the traveler. And David? (laughs) Oh, the hypocrisy. Oh, the hypocrisy that lies within my heart and that lies within the church of Jesus often. David gets angry. And he indicts justice as a good king should rather than being unjust as he was to Bathsheba and Uriah. And he says, this man deserves to die. This man deserves to die. And Nathan, the prophet, David's pastor, says, David, you're the man. You are the man. That's the verdict of sin. You're the man. You're the woman. 
You're the man. You're the woman. Eugene Peterson says this is the part of the gospel. It's never about someone else. It's always about you or about me. The gospel is never a truth in general. It's always a truth in specific. The gospel is never just a commentary on culture and ideas. It's always about actual persons, actual pain, and actual sin. Psalm 51, a well-known psalm, comes from this time of David's life, comes from when God confronts him with Nathan's sermon. And Psalm 51 is perhaps the best picture of genuine, true repentance in all of the Bible. I love Psalm 51. I mean, how can David go from adultery and murder, and then he ends Psalm 51 with these words, Open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. How can David shift from being a man after God's heart to adultery, murder, and lying, and then now ending with, I want to praise you with everything in me? Listen to how David prays in the middle of Psalm 51. David confesses against you, God, and you only have I sinned. Now, technically speaking, that's not true, is it? He sinned against Bathsheba. He sinned against Uriah. But David is saying, I understand what I've done. I have turned away from the living God who has loved me to serve myself. I have sinned first and foremost against God. When we confess sin, it's knowing that we sin against God primarily. And we sin against others. But primarily, we have to start with God and then move to our sin against others. And as we see our sin against God, it enables us to be filled with joy. Because it's only in that place of brokenness and confession that we encounter a God who forgives us, who cleanses us, and who loves us. We don't confess sin because we feel bad about the consequences. That's indulging in self-pity. True repentance and true confession is because we've sinned against God. Go back to 1 Peter 1, 13. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Peter tells us how we're to do this. We're to be sober-minded, our minds engaged, by setting our hope on the grace of Jesus Christ. Sober-mindedness comes when we see the grace of Jesus. We only see the depth of His grace when we see the depth of our sin. Only when we can say and when we own, I'm the man. I'm the woman. I've sinned against you and you only, God. Then in that place, we can receive God's grace and God's love. I love this quote from Richard Rohr. He says, it's only through the holes in our soul, that brokenness, the holes in our soul, that we break out and God breaks through. Many people, many pastors, many churches will tell you over and over, you got to go be better and you got to go do more. But I pray that you don't see the Bible as a morality tale. We will only walk in obedience with God, engaging in God's kingdom when we're sober-minded. Minds engaged, set fully on the grace of Jesus, confessing, I'm the man, I'm the woman. Tim Keller says, when the thing that most assures you of your value, God's love, is the thing that convicts you of your sin, then your life will change. Say that again. 
When the thing that most assures you of your value, God's love, is the thing that convicts you of your sin, then your life will change. Then you will hate the sin without hating yourself. That should break our hearts. That we've sinned against a God that loved us so much that He just didn't send Nathan the prophet. But He sent His only Son to die so that we could be cleansed and forgiven. So we could be healed and restored. King David, when told the parable by Nathan, knew that justice had to be given to the poor man. That justice had to be given, therefore death was required. David said the man who has done this deserves to die. Death was required. That's true. Justice required death in this parable. And justice requires death in our own personal story of salvation and sin. God knew that, which is why Christ came, lived, and died for you and for me. Which is why Christ was the one, not David in Psalm 51, who was cast away from the presence of God. Fellowship of the Holy Spirit removed as he hung on the cross and his bones crushed on that tree. St. Augustine, one of the most influential church fathers from the 4th century, bishop in Africa, a man who had a lifelong battle with sexual struggle and addiction, wrote on his deathbed, on the wall of his deathbed, Psalm 51. It's what he wanted to be the last sermon preached to his heart. He wanted to be reminded of what God does best, and that's forgive what he does best is he forgives and so why talk about sin why do we seek to understand the nature of sin its posture of passivity and power and its verdict so that we can better understand the love of god towards us in jesus how do we guard against sin and live more into god true change and true repentance when we allow the thing that we value the most god's love be the thing that convicts us of our sin. Why I talk about sin? The greater our sense of our sin, the greater sense of our appreciation for Jesus. We're going to sing one of my favorite hymns here in a minute during communion, Come Thou Fount. And the hymn sings, prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. And there is no one here this morning, including me, that is beyond falling into grave sin. Never ever think, oh, I could never do that. Yes, we could. But oh to grace, how great a debtor. Daily I'm constrained to be. Let that grace, now like a fetter, bind my wandering heart to thee. Let's pray. God, I ask that you would do just that. Even as we come now to this table to feast on your love and your grace to us. Would you meet us? Would you meet us, I pray, as you've already been with us this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.